want you to take your Bibles and uh, turn with me to Titus chapter 2. And while you're turning this morning, I have a question I want you uh, to consider. If you were given a single word to explain Christianity, what would that word be? So just one word to summarize what Christianity is about, what word would you use? Would it be rules? I hope not. Maybe better yet, salvation, discipleship, or maybe you would fudge a little bit and try to use two words to say eternal life. I know some of you like to fudge the rules from time to time, all right? So maybe you try to squeeze in there uh, two words, eternal life. Now, I would submit that all of those words, except for rules, are are good words to use when describing what Christianity uh, is about. Anytime we talk about Christianity, we talk about salvation, of course. And we certainly want to include in any discussion about the Christian faith, uh, the topic of discipleship. And of course, if we're talking about Christianity, we should always at some point get to eternal life. However, none of these words, in my opinion, are the best word to summarize Christianity. In fact, the best word to summarize Christianity is grace. Christianity is all about grace. Now that said... Uh, since grace, um, I find that grace is one of those words that in the church we throw around a lot, we, we, we use it a lot, but we, we really don't, in my opinion, most of the time uh, know exactly what we're talking about. I want to define grace for you this morning. So here's the biblical definition of grace. Grace is God's unmerited and unconditional favor to us through Jesus. Grace is God's unmerited and unconditional favor to us through Jesus. Let's unpack this definition a little. Unmerited means we don't do anything to earn God's favor, and unconditional means there's no condition we must meet to receive or to keep his favor. In other words, there's nothing we do or don't do to cause God to show us favor or to keep him from doing so. Instead, grace means God freely gives us his favor. And by favor, I'm referring to his love and acceptance. Grace means that we we don't earn God's love and acceptance, and neither do we do anything to keep him from giving it to us. He just freely bestows it on us. Of course, you'll notice that the definition says that God gives us grace through Jesus, meaning we receive his grace through faith in Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and as we're going to see today, future coming. When we believe that Jesus is God's son who lived the perfect life, died on a Roman cross in our place, rose again three days later, and then is coming back one day for those who are his, God instantly and forever forgives our sins, makes us his children, and grants us eternal life. Hopefully then it's clear why I say that the best word that explains Christianity is grace. Now, what does this have to do with our series in Titus? Well, this little letter is about the relationship between doctrine and devotion. It's about how what we believe and how we live are are married. They are wed together. Paul repeatedly tells Titus that sound or healthy doctrine results in healthy living and that unhealthy doctrine results in unhealthy living. As I mentioned last week, a key verse in Titus is the last verse of chapter 1, verse 16, uh, where Paul says that the false teachers who were plaguing the church in Crete were professing God with their lips. They were claiming to know God with their lips, but they were denying him by the way 
that they were living. To put it another way, they were revealing by how they were behaving that there was something wrong with what they were believing. It's crucial that we get this. So I'm going to say it again. Wrong belief always leads to wrong behavior. And wrong behavior always reveals that we are believing wrongly in some way. That's why Paul, and Paul says in chapter 2, not once but twice, that Titus is to teach both right belief and right behavior, both healthy doctrine and healthy devotion. In fact, look at verse 1 where Paul says this to Titus, he says, but as for you, Titus, teach what accords, that word means what is fitting with sound or healthy doctrine. You see the connection between doctrine and devotion? Paul puts Titus, he says, hey, you, you need to teach to these new believers, these, these new churches, that they need to believe rightly, that you need to teach them the, the right kind of doctrine, but you also, as you do that, you need to teach them the right kind of living that goes with that right kind of doctrine. And I'll show Titus how to do this. In the rest of chapter two, Paul lays out healthy doctrine and healthy devotion. He actually begins with the healthy living in verses two through 10, and then transitions to healthy doctrine in verses 11 through 14. And what we're gonna do today is we're gonna look at the doctrine part, and then next Sunday we're gonna come back and we're gonna look at the devotion part. And we're gonna do that because if we're actually, again, we're gonna, we're gonna live in the right way, we have to believe in the right way. We have to know uh, the truth. This really, this entire chapter, all 15 verses, they, they all go together. We don't have time to cover it all this morning. And so we're gonna deal with the doctrine part today and then we'll come back and we'll talk about the devotion part. And here's what we're gonna find. We're gonna find that this doctrine is all about grace. So get this, healthy doctrine is a doctrine that has grace at its center. Healthy doctrine is a grace-centered doctrine. Any doctrine that does not have grace at the center of it is not healthy. It will be unhealthy. And again, if you have unhealthy doctrine, you're going to end up with unhealthy living. So let's look at what Paul says in verses 11 through 14. He writes, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. One of the things that you should note about uh, these verses is that they are one long run-on sentence. Do you see that? There, there are no periods, just a bunch of commas, all right? So Paul's a great theologian. When it came to grammar, mm, not so much, all right? Big, long run-on sentence. Now, what we have here, though, is we really have a summary of the Christian faith, a summary that was probably used in the early church to disciple new believers, it's a summary that provides what we might call the A to Z's of the Christian faith. Not the ABC's of the Christian faith, but rather the A to Z's of the Christian faith. This isn't just the, the basics or the fundamentals, but rather a summary of the entire gospel message. Therefore, what we're going to talk about today isn't just for new believers, it's for all of us. All of us need to be rock, sil rock solid when it comes to the A's to Z's of the Christian faith. So you will note that Paul's summary revolves around two appearances of God's grace. One that happened in the past 
and one that's going to happen in the future. And a close examination of these appearances reveals three things about God's grace. It's person, it's purpose, and it's power. The power, the purpose, and the person of God's grace, that's the outline for today. We'll begin with a person of God's grace. God's grace, his unmerited and unconditional favor doesn't randomly and arbitrarily show up in our lives. Rather, it comes to us in a person. When Paul says in verse 11 that the grace of God has appeared, he's talking about what we're going to celebrate here in a couple of weeks, the incarnation, when the Son of God took on human flesh and came here to this earth. When when Paul says the grace of God has appeared, he's talking about when Jesus came to this earth 2,000 years ago. In other words, God's grace is a person. It is the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, the word here for appear, the, the Greek word, is the word from which we get our word epiphany, which is the manifestation of a deity. So, so Paul is saying the grace of God has uh, manifested itself. It has been made known. A deity has been made known. And who is that deity? It is Jesus Christ. That's important to understand that as Paul goes on to say here in verse 11, when the grace of God appeared, when Jesus appeared, he brought salvation for all people. However, Paul's not saying that when Jesus appeared, that he saved all people, but rather that he made salvation available for all people. This is key. God's grace doesn't save everyone. Instead, it makes salvation available for everyone. But for someone to be saved, they have to place their faith in Jesus. Specifically, they must believe that he's, as Paul says in verses 13 and 14, the great God and Savior who gave himself to redeem us to set us free from the penalty of sin. You see, we're all sinners. What Paul calls lawless in verse 14. And the penalty for our sin is spiritual death and eternal separation from God. However, in his grace, God sent Jesus to take the penalty of our sin in our place so that now through faith in Jesus, we're free from the penalty of sin and we're given eternal life. Now, did you get what I just shared with you there? I just shared with you the core of the gospel message, the, the, the core of this message about grace. The, the fact that we are sinners, right? We are all sinners. We, we, we are all lawless. And because we are all sinners, we all deserve death. We are all under this, this death penalty. And, and yet in his grace for us, simply by, by his grace, not because of anything we do or any goodness in us, God decided to send his son Jesus to take the penalty in our place so that now through faith in him, we are no longer spiritually dead and on our way to an eternity in hell, but rather we have new life in Christ and we're going to spend eternity in heaven with Jesus forever. Now, Can't we say this morning that that's pretty awesome? Can't we say that that is pretty wonderful? God's grace is amazing, wouldn't you say? Okay, friends, listen. Okay? We've got to do better than that. Because there is nothing more wonderful, more amazing than to know that at one point in your life, you were dead in your sins. You are on your way to eternity, separated from God in hell. And what's more, you had no hope that you could do anything to ever change that 
fact, and yet God in his grace and mercy determined that he was going to open your eyes, he was going to enable you to, to look at Jesus Christ and to see the glory of God, that he really was the son of God who loved you so much that he gave his life in your place so that you don't have to spend eternity separated from God. He took that punishment for you, and now through faith in him, you are, you are dead to your sins, you are alive to Christ, and you have an eternity waiting for you in heaven. There is nothing more amazing than that, right? Actually, there is something more amazing than that. Because what Paul actually tells us here in Titus chapter 2 is that there's more grace to come. God isn't done showing us grace. There's a lot more grace, a whole lot more grace. And once again, this grace is going to come in the person of Jesus In verse 13, Paul says that now that we're saved, we're waiting for our, get this, blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This, of course, is a reference to Jesus' second coming, to the day when he will come to take us to be with him forever. Here's how the writer of Hebrews explains it. Christ has appeared, there's that word again, once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So we can think of it this way. When Jesus came the first time, he came in order to save us from the penalty of sin. He took God's judgment on our sin so that we don't have to. That's what Jesus when he did when he came the first time. When he comes a second time, however, he won't come to save us from the penalty of sin, but rather from the presence of sin. When Jesus comes again, he's going to eradicate sin forever. He's going to renew this earth, removing from it every bit of sin and its consequences, and we're going to live forever on that new, perfect, sinless earth in new, perfect, sinless bodies. That's God's grace that is to come, and it is going to come in the person of Jesus. So, let's make some application here. First, have you received God's grace? Have have you you truly received it? Have you believed that Jesus Christ came 2,000 years ago, that, that he appeared, that he was made known? That he is God come in the flesh. That, that, that Christmas, what we're going to celebrate, isn't just a, a holiday. It isn't just a tradition. It's a reality. It's a truth that God really has come in the flesh. And not only has he come in the flesh, but, but he has come to, to die in our place. To take the judgment, God's judgment on sin that we all deserve. And that he then rose again three days later so that through faith in him again, Our sin can be paid for and we can have eternal life in him. Have you received that grace? If you've not received the grace, I just would invite you to receive it today. You know that word judgment that the writer of Hebrews talks about? He says it's appointed for man once to die and after that comes judgment. Can I just remind you today, I know we don't like to wrestle with this fact, but we're all going to die. Right? There's the bad news. We are all going to die. It's been a point. Unless Jesus comes back before we die, which would be great, right? We'd be wonderful. But we are all going to die. And after we die, what comes next? What comes next is judgment. 
What comes next is judgment except for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Why is that? Well, for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, our judgment day already took place. And our judgment day took place 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ died in our place and he took the wrath of God. He took the judgment of God on our sin. And so if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ today, you can know that when you die, there's no judgment. All there is is eternal bliss with Jesus forever. And so the question is, is have you received that grace? You don't have to do anything for it. That's why it's grace. It's unmerited. It's unconditional. All you have to do is receive God's grace. If you've not received God's grace, will you receive it today? Now, if you have received God's grace, here's the application for you. You you will know that both Paul and the writer of Hebrews tell us that if we've received God's grace in the past, that should make us long for God's grace in the future, right? Paul says, right, that, that we are waiting for our blessed hope. The writer of Hebrews says that we are eagerly waiting, that Jesus is coming back for those who are eagerly waiting for him. So my question for you, brothers and sisters, are you eagerly waiting for him? Is the thing that you are longing for in your heart today the return of Jesus Christ? Is that what you are focused on? Is that what you are looking for? We should be, right? Because it is our hope. We need hope today, don't we? If we need anything in our world today, it's hope. Well, we have hope. We have a blessed hope. We have the best hope that there is. It is a hope that is sure. It is a hope that the the writer of Hebrews talks about is an anchor for our souls. And so let's look to Jesus' return. Let's eagerly wait for it. Why is this such a big deal? Well, it's such a big deal because what we see in our passage today is it's why it's so important to understand grace. You see, if we truly understand the grace Jesus brought when he came the first time, then it'll make us long for the grace that Jesus is going to bring the second time. When we truly understand what God has done for us through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, then it will cause us to eagerly and yet patiently look forward to what God's going to do for us when he comes again. What's more, and this is really Paul's focus in our passage today, understanding and appreciating God's grace in the past and longing for God's grace in the future is what enables us to live out the purpose of God's grace in the present. So as Christians, we always need to be looking back to the grace that God showed us in the past, and we also need to be looking forward to the grace that God is going to show us in the future, because looking back at past grace and looking forward to future grace enables us to live out God's purpose for his, his, his purpose for us in the present. Past, future, enables us to, to, labels us to live out God's purpose in the future, which is the second point in the message. Let's talk about the purpose of God's grace in the present. This is key. And I know I keep using words like important, crucial, and now key, uh, but it's true of pretty much every word in our text today. So I'm sorry, not sorry for continually using these words. But anyway, look, look with me at verse 14. Look closely at verse 14. Paul says this. He says, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, I could do an entire four-week series just on this verse, okay? Literally, there's that much there. But for today, I will point out that God gives us grace through Jesus in order to redeem us. Again, that means to free us from the penalty of sin. To purify us, that means to remove from us the stain of sin and to make us his people, his beloved children, children who are, get this, zealous for good works. 
I'm going to home in on the children who are zealous for good works because that's Paul's emphasis here. So, if you have received God's grace in the person of Jesus, you've received it so that you might be zealous for good works. The word zealous means to be deeply committed to something. It means to be an enthusiast. Now, we're all an enthusiast about something, right? Sports, hunting, exercising, food, essential oils, gaming, uh, grandchildren. So I, I throw the grandchildren in there because uh, it seems that I'm this point in my life where people are repeatedly telling me that I'm going to love having grandchildren, like over and, and over again, all right? And, and I don't know about that. I think at this point anyway, Eva's a lot more excited about the grandchildren than maybe that I am. All right, but I'm pretty sure that one of you is going to buy me a, a t-shirt, okay? Because sometimes you do these things and this t-shirt is going to say, you know, that t-shirt that says that grandchildren are the reward for not strangling your teenagers, all right? <laughs> but if you get that idea, just take that money and put it in the offering, okay? It'll, it'll go to better, better use there. But the point is we're all an enthusiast about something and most things it's fine to be an enthusiast about. I don't know about essential oils, but the other things that I mentioned probably... <laughs> But, but here's the thing, in, in, in all seriousness, I want you to understand, Paul wants you to understand, brothers and sisters, that if you have received God's grace, the thing that you should be most enthusiastic about by a long shot is what? Is good works. You have been saved so that you might be zealous, so that you might be an enthusiast for good work. So, so yes, you've been saved so that you don't have to go to hell. And yes, you've been saved so that you can go to heaven. But there is much, much more to it, right? You have been saved so that you can follow Jesus in the present, in this day. Literally this day and every day of your life. Here's how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2. He says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So th those verses right there, many of us have them memorized, right? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. So, so, so the most often quoted and most cherished verses in the Bible, and we love them and we should love them. But there's another verse that goes right along with them. And we need to know this verse just as well because Paul goes on to say, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. Walk means live. Listen, brothers and sisters, before you were saved, God created, he set out good works for you to do that once you were saved, you might walk in them. We receive God's grace so that we might do good works. And so the question here this morning is, is are we giving ourselves to good works? Are we enthusiastic about it? Is it the focus of our lives? Now, next week, we're going to talk about what these good works are, and we're going to talk about why they're so important. So you need to come back for that, all right? But for now, we just need to grab hold of the fact that, that our lives should be focused on living out these good works that God prepared in advance for us to do and then saved us so that we could do them. Now, let's talk about how we actually can do them, because what I don't want you to walk away with today is, oh, I just need to go do good works. And I just need to, you know, kind of white knuckle it. And I just need to drum it up. And I need to just be somebody who is, who is more focused on good works. 
Yes, there is an, an aspect of that, but what we need to realize is that if we are going to do these good works, what do we need? We need God's grace. We need God's grace. Specifically, we need the power of God's grace. The power of God's grace. In verse 12, Paul states that not only does God's grace save us, but it also transforms us into people who live godly lives. Look at verses 11 and 12 again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The word train in verse 12 means to discipline. God's grace disciplines us. Now, as Jerry Bridges point out, points out, being disciplined by grace sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Discipline, grace. That doesn't really seem like it goes together. It kind of seems like pretty ugly or awfully good or my personal favorite, jumbo shrimp. Right? Ever thought about that? How can you have a jumbo shrimp? Those things are contradictory. And it seems to us, in all seriousness, it seems to us that discipline and grace don't go uh, together. But as Jerry Bridges points out, if they seem contradictory, it's because we fail to understand both discipline and grace. You see, discipline isn't simply correction or punishment. Good parents discipline their kids not only by correcting them when they're wrong, but also by instructing them in what is right. You you with me here? Um, If I tell my child, hey, I don't want you to play in the road, I want you to play in the yard, I'm disciplining them. But I'm, I'm disciplining them in a way that is gracious to them. Why? Because if they play in the road, they're probably going to get hurt, and if they play in the yard, that's where they are going to be able to flourish. Now, I've told you this over and over again. The rules that God gives us are his grace for us. They are his goodness to us, because they tell us, okay, or they protect us from what is wrong and what is going to be harmful to us, and they also point us in the direction in which we are going to flourish. So, so God is never up in heaven kind of going, ah, I get to squash them with this, all right? I get to make them miserable. I can't wait to see how, how hard this is going to be on them. No, God's rules, his law is his grace to us because it protects us from going wrong, from, from the wrong, from, from the hurt. And it also points us in the direction where we can experience good and where we can live what we might even call the good life. So God's grace not only corrects us, but it also instructs us. What's more, God's grace also gives us the power to do what is right and to not do what is wrong. So it not only instructs us, but it also gives us the power. As Paul says in verse 12, it equips us to say yes to godliness and no to ungodliness. Therefore, being disciplined by grace is not a contradictory statement at all. The question, though, is how does grace discipline us? How does it transform us into people who live godly lives? Well, I want to point out to you in closing here today three ways that it does so, three ways that grace disciplines us. This is going to be huge for some of you today, so lean in with me here, right? First, grace disciplines us by showing us what we should do and shouldn't do. Maybe you never thought about this, but, but this book is God's grace to you. Did you know that this book is God's grace to you? It's God's grace to you because, because in it, God 
tells you, or really maybe say it this way, it's his grace by which he first brings you to salvation, and then second, shows you how to live out that salvation, how to pursue the good works you were saved for. One of the things that saddens me the most um, is finding so many Christians who fail to receive the grace of God's word simply because they refuse to spend time in it. I just want to say this again, brothers this is God's grace to you. It's his grace to you. And so do not allow yourself to fail to spend time in it and to fail to receive the grace that God wants to give to you. As you, you read this book and as you study it, the Holy Spirit comes in and he uses that to help you to say no to ungodliness and yes to godliness. To, to say no to worldly passions and to say yes to living an upright, holy, righteous life. Second, Grace disciplines us by always working for our spiritual welfare. I want you to listen to me here. As his child, God is always for you, never against you. Can I say that again? If you are God's child, he is always for you. He is never against you. I know that many of you have circumstances in your life that may make you question whether or not God is for you. But I can tell you very confidently based upon God's word and based upon the grace that God has showed you in the past that he is always for you no matter what you go through in life. How can I say that? Romans 8.32 says, he who not only spared his son, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give you all things? We're going to get to Romans 8.28 in a second. This is Romans 8.32, all right? Which says, God didn't even spare his own son. In other words, Paul is arguing from the greater to the lesser. He's saying, if God was willing to give you the greatest, if, if, in essence, he was willing to give you everything in his son, can't you trust that he's going to take care of every other need that you have in your life? So let me just say this to you. Some of you got just incredibly difficult heart-wrenching circumstances that are going on in your life. Some of you have had that happen in the past. Most, if not all of us, will have, have that happen to us in, in the future. And here, here's what I want to say to you, all right? I don't know exactly why God is allowing that circumstance, those things to happen in your life, but here's, here's what I can tell you. Here, here's what it can't be. It can't be that he doesn't love you. It can't be that he doesn't love you because he showed that he loved you 2,000 years ago when he gave his son to die in your place. And so there must be some good that he is trying to work in your life. You may not be able to see that right now, but let me just tell you, someday you will see it. Someday you will see it. Here's what Paul says in Romans 8, 28, right? For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. If you've been called according to God's purpose, what does that mean? Well, it means if you've been saved by God's grace, then you can know that he's gonna use everything in life for your good. It doesn't mean that everything in life is good. We need to quit saying that. Everything in life is not good. There's a lot of things in life that are not good, amen? A lot of things that are horrible, tragic. The words even fail to describe them. Not everything is good. But if you're God's child, he is going to use everything for your good. And you might not see that right now, and you might not see that for decades. In fact, you might not even see it until eternity. But I can tell you one day, Jesus Christ is going to part the clouds. We're going to see him in the sky. He's going to come back and get us. And at that moment, everything will make perfect sense. And we will know, and we will be able to see. And what's better yet, 
all of that pain and all of that hurt will be gone forever. That's what we're promised. Third, here's the big one. There's been a lot of big ones today, right? Here's the big one. Grace disciplines us by giving us the assurance of unconditional acceptance. Unconditional acceptance. God's grace means that he accepts us apart from what we do. God's grace, he means he accepts you apart from what you do. If you've received God's grace, if you've been redeemed, purified, and made his child through Jesus, then no matter what you have done or will do, God accepts you, he loves you, and he is pleased with you. Can I say that again to you today? If you have received God's grace, now you gotta ask that question, have you received God's grace? But if you have received God's grace, it does not matter what you have done, are doing, or will do, God loves you, he accepts you, and you are pleasing in his sight. I want you to think about this this morning. I want you to think about it right now. How does God see you? How is God looking at you? How does God feel about you right here, right now? Here's what I can tell you. I don't know what you've done this morning. I don't know what you did last night. I don't know what you did last week. I don't know your story. But here's what I can tell you, that if you have received God's grace right now, God looks at you and he says, that is my beloved son, that is my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. He's pleased with you. He delights over you. He rejoices over you. He loves you. He accepts you apart from anything you have done, will do, are doing. How can I say that? Well, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, then when God looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees Jesus. And so he says of you what he said of Jesus at his baptism. This is my beloved daughter. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. By the way, this is why baptism is so important. Because baptism for for us, when we are baptized, it it is a statement really that the way that God looks at us is the way that he looks at Jesus. By, By the way, do you think that God is pleased with Jesus right now? Do you think God loves Jesus? Do you think he delights in Jesus? Everything in the Bible tells us that is the case. And I know this is so hard to grab hold of and so hard to, to accept. That is the way that God feels and thinks and looks at us. Why? Because we are in Christ and it's no longer about us, it's about him. So I love this verse from Zephaniah chapter three. It says this, the Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I want you to think about this for a second because that was a prophecy, okay? It was a prophecy of things that were to come. And it was specifically a prophecy of what happened when Jesus appeared the first time. He came into our midst. God with us. And through his life, death, and resurrection enabled God to rejoice over those who would believe in him. And therefore, if you believed in Jesus, then this is the reality right now for you and forever. God rejoices over you. He loves you. He exalts over you with loud singing. You wanna know what God's doing right now? One of the things God is doing right now, he's singing over you. He's rejoicing over you. He is exalting over you his beloved son or daughter. 
That is the way that God feels about you. That is the way that God looks at you. And that is the way he will look and feel and think about you forever. And it's all because of what? It's all because of his grace. It has nothing to do with what you have done, are doing, or will do. And so what's the point? The point is this, is that when we truly get this and we truly understand this, what does it do to our hearts? It transforms our hearts. It changes us into people who want to live in a way that is pleasing to God. So you, so you gotta get this, all right? It, it, it's not, and this, this, this is the, the huge distinction, especially for us church people. We got lots of church people here today, right? We have this idea that if we do right, that we are pleasing to God. That's not how it works. You will never please God, okay, if you try to earn his pleasure. You will only please God if you recognize that you already have his pleasure and now you wanna live for him simply because of what he has done for you. Should you live in a way that is pleasing to God? Yes, but not in order to earn his pleasure or his love or acceptance because you already have it. And you see, when we truly understand that we don't have to earn God's love and acceptance and pleasure, that transforms our hearts into people who want to do so. It changes us. It's all about grace. Yes, should we live in a way that is pleasing to God? Absolutely. Should we pursue good works? Yes, but how do we do it? We do it knowing that even when we don't pursue good works, God still loves us, God still accepts us, God is still pleasing to us. And motivated by that and changed by that, disciplined by that, we go out and we live a life that is pleasing to him. So let me ask you this. When you lay your head down on your pillow tonight, how is God gonna think about you? How is he gonna feel about you? You might be tempted to think, well, it depends upon what kind of day I have. How good is my relationship with my wife? Have I been kind? Have I done a good job of being a dad to my kids? Have I watched that football game and not said any words I shouldn't say? If I do that, then God will be pleased with me. And what I want to tell you this morning, friends, is that if you have received the grace of God, if you have trusted in Jesus by faith, when you lay your head on your pillow tonight and when you wake up tomorrow morning, the way that God feels about you will not have changed. He will sing over you. He will rejoice over you. He will love and accept you. And that's the reality and that's the truth that you will have and you can cling on to forever. And as you cling, so, so here's, here's my goal and here's my, I know I'm going long here, okay. But if we would just get this, it would completely transform our church and from our church, it would transform our community and in some ways would transform our world. Here's what, I, here's what I want you to get. I want you to get the grace of God because if you will get the grace of God apart from what you do, it will turn you into people who are enthusiastic and zealous for good works because you will want to please the one who loves you and accepts you regardless of what you do. You with me? I know, it takes a while to let this sink in. But let it sink in and then let's come back next week to look at what the, those good works are and why they're so important. Let's pray.